Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. This episode is about a real stupid Florida man. We like to call these types Floridopes. If this guy, he's a real estate agent from Jacksonville, had only been a little bit smarter and done a few things differently, he may never have been caught for the murder of his wife. A blow-up doll in the passenger seat of his Jag, an extra sandwich on the bar tab, and a lower profile on dating websites, and he may have gotten off scot-free. It all started with a missing persons report made by Mike Garvin about his wife, Shirley, after they had arrived in Key West. Yes, Molly, this is uh, Mike Garvin. Uh, I'm uh, calling about my wife. She just went out to walk, so she said she was going to walk by the ocean or something. Okay, so there's someone missing? So that's Mike Garvin from Jacksonville, who says he was vacationing with his wife in Key West and that she was with him and went out for a little walk, but never returned. Well, many of their friends were surprised that she was in Key West. I was the last person to see Shirley. And we really didn't talk about Shirley leaving town. Shirley told me nothing about going away. Nothing. Shirley and Mike had a lot of money. He was into real estate and she wore a lot of fancy jewelry. We told the police that Shirley would probably have on her diamond earrings, the rings that she would have on, and that she had a Rolex watch. So all that bling, especially in South Florida, would have made Shirley a target if she was walking around on the beach or shopping. Perhaps that's why she went missing. So law enforcement brought in search dogs. And you know what? The dog did not pick up on the scent of Shirley anywhere, especially outside the room. It was very strange. It was like she had never even been there. Hmm. It was a missing person story. The story and the headlines and the questions were, what happened to Shirley Garvin? So as a result of the media attention, there were lots of potential sightings on the six-square-mile island of Key West, but none of them were actually Shirley. She just was nowhere to be found. And then, da-da-da-da, some women's sandals, similar to what Shirley would have been wearing, were found sitting alone on the beach, right at the water's edge. Perhaps she had a swimming accident. Accident, you say? Well, Mike Garvin's first wife was found hanging by a noose in her basement. She had apparently committed suicide by hanging. He found her body. I think this guy's got some bad luck with his wife. That's what I thought. Unfortunately, or fortunately for Mike, there was no autopsy on the first wife, and she was cremated. So that case could never be reopened to determine whether or not he played any part in her death. But now, with his second wife missing in Key West, police wanted him to retrace his steps. Mike told police that they checked into the hotel, which no one remembered seeing Shirley, and that they ordered a meal. Ordered our evening meal. I think it was a ranch chicken sandwich or something like that. It was probably with french fries. Came back to the room, finished our meal, went to bed. Did you order two meals or just one? It was two. It was two. two? Okay. Okay, mistake number one. The restaurant receipt showed he ordered only one sandwich. Well, that receipt started making me believe that Mrs. Garvin never made it to Key West. Also, mistake number two, credit card receipts, showed that Mike stopped at a convenience store in Miami on his way down to Key West, and there was no sign of Shirley. You know, usually you have to go to the bathroom by that point. And we just thought it was odd that 
after driving that long that Shirley wouldn't be coming in there to go to the bathroom, get something to drink. You know, it's not, we never see Shirley coming into the store. That's homicide detective Bill Larkin. Then, mistake number three, when you're driving to Key West from Jacksonville, you'll take I-75 to Yeehaw Junction and hook up with the Florida Turnpike. And then, through the tolls, there will be videotape of you passing through the toll. Well, no Shirley. You see the car going through, you see it stopping to pay the toll and then driving on through. We asked him where Shirley was sitting in the car. He said she was sitting in the front seat. We asked him if she ever got in the back seat. No, she never got in the back seat. She never reclined the seat. So at this point, we pull out the picture of the toll booth and show it to him. He looks at the picture and we say, where's Shirley? He says, I don't know. And he, at this point, starts to get very agitated. He was telling lies and, and they were starting to be uncovered. And the more they uncovered, the deeper they found it, and the harder they looked for Shirley. Mistake number four, not telling your co-workers at your real estate business you're married. I went to talk to some of his co-workers who did not know that he was married. Seemed very surprised to find out that he was married. So yeah, the two had been married for 16 years. You think Mike might have mentioned Shirley once or twice while in the office. So the police went to their house and did not find any signs of foul play. They sprayed luminol, nothing lit up like a shuttle dashboard, and they also checked his computer and... They found that Mike had a very active dating life. He was on Match.com, and he was trolling around for other women. Michael Garvin was living the life of a bachelor. He was soliciting people online. He was sending flowers to women. He had just met uh, arranging dates with women, just as he would if he were single. And his profile on Match.com had a nice picture of him, and it stated that his marital status was divorced. Huh. So... Where is his wife, Shirley Garvin? Perhaps he should change his status to widower. And Shirley's family was flabbergasted, and they were suspicious when they found out she was missing. We were sitting in this restaurant having lunch, and I put my hand on his arm, and I said, Mike, how are you getting through this? And he said, you know, Nancy, I'm the type of person. I never look back. I always look forward. Mistake number five. A background check showed that Mike had a spending problem. He had credit card debt of about $86,000. Most of the assets were in Shirley's name. She was a saver, not a spender. To me, it appeared that she was financially stable and he was financially in trouble. It wasn't until shortly before she disappeared that I ever heard her say anything even remotely unkind about him. In fact, her friend said that she was planning to dump Mike. She felt that he was financially irresponsible. Shirley said that she was planning to leave the area and Mike would not be going with her. (sighs) Women can't live with them, can't live without their money. What a snake. So police stuck a GPS tracker on his car and followed his every move. It is recording constantly and sending a beacon back to a computer, which allowed it to be tracked at all times and allowed for covert surveillance of Michael Garvin. So about six weeks after Shirley's disappearance, Mike drives about 20 miles to an area that used to be an old golf course. In fact, his phone pinged the morning that he left for Key West from that same location. We take cadaver dogs up there and they hit on a pond close by an area where the GPS shows he stopped for several minutes. Took him about seven days to drain the pond and whoops, no Shirley. It's very disappointing. We spent a week doing that and we're still back to square one. 
Ten days later, Mike returns to the same location, but a park official says he returns with a hot young babe, apparently someone he met on the internet. And so police conduct a grid search in the area, which was like 26 feet from where he parked the car. They found something very, very suspicious. There was an area that had looked a little bit different. The ground surface looked a little bit different than the areas around it. So we had crime scene probe it, which consists of putting a pole down into the dirt, and it can tell you whether the sand or dirt had been has been disturbed. And voila, they hit a skull. It was a human body just a few feet below the surface, tightly wrapped in garbage bags and bound with duct tape. And on its wrist was a Rolex watch. They had found Shirley Garvin. Her watch had stopped. It was just rolling to the 26th. Mistake number 226, I believe number six. January 26 was the day that Mike left for Key West. We would have never found her if he hadn't let us write to her. Dumbass. And the autopsy revealed that Shirley was killed with a double tap to the back of the head. I absolutely thought I was just going to crumble, that I was going, I was sick to my stomach. So she was shot in the back of the head twice, but police found no weapon. But they did find three rolls of duct tape in the garage, which they gave to Donna Wallace, who was an expert forensic examiner. I was able to roll out two of the rolls of duct tape because it had visual differences from the tape on the bags. It was slightly different in color and it had indentations along the surface of the tape. Ah, but the third roll was a different matter. Duct tape has sort of like a crosshatch fiber network that makes it tough to rip. And so when you rip it, it makes a pattern which is almost as unique as a fingerprint. Well, mistake number seven. Mike left a pattern fracture. It's called a fracture match exam, and it's a type of exam where you, it's like a forensic puzzle, try to put the pieces back together to see if they were at one time a single piece. The fact that I was able to fracture match these two pieces of tape back together meant that the tape that was found on the garbage bag wrapped around the victim came from the roll that was found in the garage at the home. With the duct tape, police had a smoking gun, even though they didn't have the gun. They arrested Mike for first degree murder. We have his inconsistent statements. We have toll booth videos that show that Shirley was not in the car. We have the GPS that led us right to her body. We have the duct tape matches and we have his girlfriends. We're ready to take it to trial. And don't forget the motive. Prosecutors believe that Shirley knew that Mike was running around on her and that he also needed her money. Shirley probably found out sincerely that he was running around. And he also was extremely heavily in debt. And this was his way to take care of everything. And what happens when a blood-sucking parasite feels threatened? Mike went from being a user and a taker to a murderer. So on that fateful night, January 25th, 2003, police and prosecutors believe that Mike was lying in wait for his wife to return home. And when she entered the front door, he shot her in the back of the head twice. So Mike wrapped up his bride in garbage bags, sealed them with the duct tape that sealed his guilt. And then he put her body in the trunk of his car. And about 6.30, he spoke with his girlfriend. And the next day, he visited her home and spent the night for the first time. So the phone call and also spending the night were something that he had never done before, probably because now Shirley was dead. So in the early morning hours, Mike drove to the state park. He buried Shirley's body, but not really that well. 
And while he was there, he took a cell phone call and that call placed him within the triangulation of the towers. And that, of course, placed him right by where her body was found. In fact, he led police right to her. And then he drove to Key West where he really screwed up and ordered one chicken sandwich No one saw his wife anywhere. She wasn't on any of the toll booth cameras. She wasn't on any of the surveillance cameras at gas stations. And the next morning when he reported his wife missing, he was hoping that law enforcement would center their investigation on Key West, not Jacksonville. That was his alibi. That's what he was going to do, report her missing from Key West so that law enforcement would center their investigation in Key West and not in Jacksonville. But the dumbass kept leaving breadcrumbs all the way up back to Jacksonville, where... Law enforcement found Shirley's body thanks to Mike. How could he have possibly ended up 29 feet from the body? Not once, but twice. The great irony of this case is that Michael Garvin, more than anyone else, solved the murder of Shirley Garvin. So you got the second wife dead, and law enforcement does believe that Mike had something to do with the death of his first wife 16 years earlier. Scumbag. Unfortunately for us, an autopsy would never performed, and the body was cremated, so there was nothing we were able to do with that information. But in the case of his second wife, he had such a mountain of evidence against him, Mike Garvin had no other choice than to plead guilty to first-degree murder. Michael Garvin realized that this was a mountain of evidence from under which he couldn't climb. He was completely surrounded and he stood nothing to gain by a trial, only public humiliation, and that was not something he was prepared to deal with. But because there was no trial, there's still a mystery surrounding Shirley's death because we really don't know how it went down. We don't have the testimony. And also, we don't know what he did with the murder weapon. All Mike said was that it's irretrievable. Probably threw it in the water off of Key West somewhere. It's now a coral reef. But he was sentenced to life without parole, LWAP, after he pled guilty, and so he's not going anywhere except his little jail cell. Michael Garvin sealed his own fate with the duct tape, which turned out to be better than an eyewitness. I'd like to thank Forensic Files, one of my favorite all-time shows for the audio that contributed to this podcast. I want to tell you a little bit about the greatest art heist ever and how it's come to West Palm Beach. Last weekend, I had the joy of going to the Kravis Center. And of course, everything was totally COVID safe because the production that I took in was outside. And you're like, what do you say outside? How can you have a production outside? Well, one of the actors, Jeremy Quinn, joins me right now. And I had actually, Jeremy, thank you for joining us. I'm a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Okay. Well, before we give away what you were doing, I am, <laughs> I'm an artist and I love anything that has to do with forgery or art theft. So I had seen the mm. Netflix documentary on the Gardner Museum heist. I've read all the books. It's just phenomenal the way you all put it together. But explain how it all works. All right. So basically, the audience is guided on a walking tour all outside. And they have three experts that lead the tour and know all the information about the heist, all the suspects, everything. They know everything there is to know. And they take the audience on this walking tour to meet 
four different suspects. And so when the audience comes to the station of one of the suspects, they hear the suspect's story and able to ask questions. And they're also given an online electronic dossier that they can access with their smartphone, which I think is a fantastic use of modern technology in conjunction with theater and this type of theater, which is so outside the box. It is. You know, and so that's basically the structure of the show. Yeah, it's completely um, interactive. And so just very. to remind everybody, this it's based on the biggest art heist in history. This is so amazing. It took place March 18th, 1990. Two thieves disguised as police officers entered Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which is kind of like a quirky art museum. And it didn't really have like state-of-the-art security, I must say. Uh, yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> And they got away with like a half billion dollars, today's dollars, uh, and 13 works of art. But they were kind of weird. One of them was a little Chinese vase and a finial. But then you had some major Rembrandt Vermeer Manet stolen yeah. as well. But it looks like it might have been an inside job. So the first guy that we interviewed was Rick, who was a security guard who like opened the door as a signal. And he was it was his last day of work. <laughs> and I definitely think he had something to do with it. You do? I do. Well, that's. That pleases me. Yeah, well, you were my last on my list, <laughs> as, by the way. As my suspect. <laughs> yeah. It's my objective to always tell my story in a way that convinces the audience that I didn't do it or had nothing to do with <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, except you're in an orange jumpsuit. You're in prison. It was your yeah, but blueprint. Don't, don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> you have the blueprint for how to make the ripoff because you did it before. Explain. Well, yeah, absolutely. My character, Miles Connor Jr., had a template for which he followed when he pulled off his different art heist. And it seems as though whoever committed this particular heist copycatted his template to make it look like he was the number one suspect. And in fact, for a while, the FBI had him as the number one suspect. But at the time of the heist, my character was already in jail. <laughs> so he could not have committed it. Yeah, but I've seen people in jail that have committed, you know, where they've hired a hitman to kill their victim or their wife or somebody. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. That's totally possible as well. But you had successfully ripped off a Rembrandt before the Gardner heist, right? Uh, Miles did steal a Rembrandt, a Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He used it as crime insurance to get himself a reduced sentence for another job that he had done when he robbed the Woolworth mansion in Maine. (laughs) It's like, give me less time and I'll give you back the Rembrandt, which by the way, you were carrying, or your character was carrying it and it was in its frame and it got stuck in a turnstile. So you learn because at the Isabella Gardner Museum, they cut the paintings out of the frame. I know. It's blasphemy. Yeah, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing. And that's what, you know, I personally believe that whoever executed the crime was amateurish in nature. Okay. So that's kind of what I, now I don't deny that it's possible Miles orchestrated it from behind bars. That's completely possible. Right. But in the show, it's completely my objective to point all fingers away from Miles and convince the audience that he had nothing to do with it. I have several tactics that I use, actually. I try to point the finger more at the security guard. Yes, it worked. Um, (laughs) Yes, excellent, excellent. You know, and, and I try to distract the audience with my story so that by the time they're finished with me, they think I could have done it, but they're not entirely sure. And so that's, that's the place where I want to get them. 
And it's really, I have to be honest with you, I've been doing theater for 38 years, and this type of project was completely new to me. Well, it's totally interactive, and every performance is different, right? It is. It's every single show is a different show. And that's actually kind of invigorating, you know, when you're performing, say, six shows in a row, to have each one be different basically on the interaction with the audience. And sometimes they try to trip you up and ask you something that is way far in left field because maybe perhaps they saw the documentary on Netflix or they did some prior research on Wikipedia or something and they'll throw a curveball at you Mm -hmm. and you have to figure out how to manage that question if you know the information as well as if you don't know the answer. There's different ways of answering questions, but your your primary goal is to answer honestly. The Art Heist, it's at the Kravis Center, and I'm speaking with one of the stars of the show, Jeremy Quinn, and he's the last guy in the performance. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit because he's in prison. He plays Miles Connor Jr., and he's connected to the mob, right? Um, I don't think he might be, but there's no research that was overwhelmingly pointing in that direction. Well, you were on The Sopranos um, as an actor. Oh, well, that's true. I was. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I actually, uh, early in my career, I was the stand-in for Anthony Jr. No. Um, yeah, I, I was oh, in my, my 30s. Yeah, I was in my 30s, and this kid was like 15 years old. So I used to have a joke saying that my career was in the toilet because I was standing in for a 15-year-old. <laughs> but, you know. Hey, listen, they paid They paid me, I showed up, and I had a great time. But what happened in the so, end, after it went to black? End, after it went to black? I don't know. Oh, come on. I it's know, I really, I, I really don't know. I know. <laughs> but anyway, back to the art heist at the Isabella Gardner Museum. I think it's so awesome that we have a theatrical investigation into an art heist that's still a mystery. And what's cool about it is that the case has not been solved, nor has the things that were stolen been recovered. So they're still out there. Yeah. And it's an amazing story. And I didn't personally, I didn't know the story at all. But then when I started to do my research and investigate, I really got into it. Me too. I agree. You know, I questioned the executive director that was hired six months before the heist took place. Because she was told by her board of directors to put the place on the map. And 30 some odd years later, we're still talking about it. Yes. And the museum's still open, but the artwork has never been found. But they've got like empty frames where it used to hang. Yeah, Yeah, they do. Use your imagination. So listen, if you don't know anything about the great art heist at the Gardner Museum, you need to find out about it and go see this production. It's fantastic. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) Thank you, Jeremy, so much for joining us. So that wraps up this episode of Full Rigor. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and check me out on Instagram at Full Rigor Podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.